Well, please have John 15 open in front of you. And as I said, we'll be here for a little while, but we'll look at some other scriptures as well together, looking at this theme of the union that the believer has with the Lord Jesus. And that truth is incredibly important, and it is so precious. It is this union that we have with our Savior. And really, that, that whole matter brings us to the heart of what it means to be a real Christian. You know that question, what is a, a Christian, is the most important one that we could ever ask. And it's a question, really, which many people have struggled to answer and which uh, many people have gone terribly wrong in their answer to. You see, a Christian, a true believer, is not someone who, for example, has been baptized as important as baptism is for someone who knows the Lord. The water of baptism doesn't make a, a person a Christian. No doubt there are thousands of people who have been baptized, and yet they don't know the Lord. There are also those who still have a strange idea that because they've been born in a, a so-called Christian country, that that's what they are. But again, that's so far from the truth. It doesn't make you a real Christian. You know, the vast majority of people around us have no interest in religion, let alone the truth of the Bible. So what makes a person a real Christian according to the Bible? Well, the answer is this. A real believer, a true Christian, is someone who is in Christ. In basic terms, the, the Holy Spirit joins believers to the Lord Jesus by faith. And as a consequence, we know Christ, we receive Christ himself, and all the blessings that come through him. We are united to him. It is a relationship with him. You know, one of the old writers said, even the angels wonder at the riches that God has displayed in uniting us with his son. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so it's this vital, personal, saving union with the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, the only Savior. If we're not in Christ this morning, we have no part in his death on the cross to deal with our sin. We have no share in his resurrection and the life that is brought. Unless we are in Christ, we are not saved. And the reality is that not everybody is in Christ. And right now, this morning, you will know whether you are or whether you are not. Now, to try and explain this distinction even further and to make it clear, I want to take you to a, a truth where two men are spoken of in the Bible and both are referred to as Adam. And so the Bible speaks about the first Adam and the second Adam. And when we grasp this, it will help us to understand more what it means to be a real Christian, what it means to be in Christ. And so, firstly, the first Adam. Now, this first Adam was the first man created by God, and in a physical sense, he is the father of us all. And we see that from the beginning of the Bible. If you go back to Genesis, you'll see that Adam and Eve were the first man and woman. God brought them together in marriage, and from their union has come the whole line of humanity. And so that is the, the first Adam. And the Bible also speaks about the second, the better, the last Adam. You say, well, who is that? Well, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior, 
He is called Adam because he is the, the second head of the human race, as it were. Now, for those not familiar with the Bible, you know that might be hard to take in, but it's important, and so we need to think about it for a little while. And so the first Adam sinned against God, rebelled against God, and disobeyed him. And as a result of his disobedience, his sin, the entire human race is under the judgment, the anger, the displeasure, and the punishment of God. You know, that's why there is death. You know, that's why we have to die. We don't die just because we get older. You know, if man had never sinned, there would be no death. Death is not a natural thing. It is the punishment for sin. The Bible says in Romans 3, the wages of sin is death. Therefore, all who are in Adam must die. And that is where all of us are naturally. We are born in that condition. The sin of Adam passes on through the generations. Our nature is sinful. The guiltiness and condemnation continues with us. And we continue in that rebellion against God. We're in that state of, of enmity with God. Now, technically, we see in Scripture that Adam's first sin is imputed to all his children who derive from him by ordinary birth. That's the condition of all who are born into this world. They are born evil, born sinful, born enemies of God. You know, it's true of me, and it's true of you. It explains why the world is the place that it is. You know, anybody can look at this world and ask, you know, why are things so broken? Why is the world the way that it is? Why is there so much cruelty and war and crime and disease and dying? And the Word of God explains all this to us. The world is the sad place it is because of the disobedience we see in our first father, Adam, and that sinfulness which continues in every generation in us. And we are all born in this sad and broken and sinning world. And, you know, that would be a terrible message if that was it. You know, that is truly bad news. But we mustn't gloss over the bad news because it is serious. And really, you know, it couldn't be worse. And that's why we are as we are. That's why you and I are, are so imperfect, why we sometimes, you know, say things that we bitterly regret, do things that we are ashamed of after the event. You know, I've done it, you have, we all have. And we might, we might say afterwards, you know, why did I do that? And it's because we're Adam's descendants. Our hearts are deceitful and wicked. We're capable of, of terrible sin. And the Bible tells us that out of the, the heart of man comes all these terrible things. You know, let none of us imagine that we are above committing great sins. You know, it's only by the mercy of God that we are here and not even in a worse position than we are. You know, we are all guilty, all sinners in the sight of a holy God and in and of ourselves, there's no hope. Those who are in Adam are viewed by God as sinners liable to death. And when the Bible talks of death in this way, it's not saying that we die and then there's nothing. It means we die and then there is judgment. And if we remain in Adam, if we remain in our sin, we will face eternal punishment. And you know, it is my responsibility before the Lord to be clear about that with you. You know, it's not an easy thing to speak of. You know, for those of us, uh, for those, sorry, who are dying in Adam, you know, it is, a, it is such a sorrow and a sadness. 
you know, that there is nothing but eternal punishment after death. And it's no kindness for any pastor or preacher not to tell people these things. You know, they are clear from the Bible, and we've got to be clear too. This is our state outside of Christ. So what hope then is there? Well, thank God that there is a second Adam. You know, the good news, the glorious news, is that God in his love has sent a second Adam to help us, to undo all the, the misery which the first Adam brought into the world by disobedience. And the second Adam, the Lord Jesus, he came to rescue, he came to undo, he came to address all that the first Adam has ruined. And so our only hope this morning for, for any of us is to be brought to be in Christ. You know, to be rescued from this, this one state of being in Adam and transferred by grace to being in Christ. That's a Christian. Someone who is in Christ. You know, someone who, who knows the Lord. Someone who is in fellowship with the Lord Jesus. Now, I hope you understand that the Lord Jesus is alive. I hope you understand that he's here this morning. I hope you understand that, yes, he died on the cross and he did that saving, remarkable work, but he didn't remain dead. He rose again in triumph. He ascended into heaven and now he sits at the right hand of God, you know, with the Father in glory. He's alive. And he is in fellowship with all those who are his own people, but not with those who are unbelievers who are still in their sin and their enmity. And that's why Jesus explains that there is a, a difference between the believer and the unbeliever. Look, if you will, at John 15, and particularly verses 18 to 19, it's a little bit further on than what we read together. But see what the Lord says. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so to all true Christians, Jesus says, the world will hate them as it hated him. Why? Because the world recognizes that there is a difference between Christians and non-Christians. There is a, a, a world of difference, if we can put it like that. It is so marked and you can't avoid it. It doesn't matter how nice you are. It doesn't matter how kind you are. It doesn't matter how generous you are. All of those things, those who are not Christian have this hatred for Christ and for his people. Those who are in Adam are opposed to those who are in Christ. And so the, the human race has got this great divide in it. And by the way, it's the only division that God recognizes in that sense. It doesn't matter what language you speak doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what color your skin is or anything else. The most important thing is this, whether we are in Adam or whether we are in Christ. And the world will respond to you accordingly. And if we are believers, we shouldn't be surprised by that. The world cannot love you because it does not love Christ. The one that you are intimately bound up in, savingly united with. And you know, that's the, the tragedy. So many churches forget that. You know, they're running after the world. 
They want to embrace the world, to be friends with the world, to invite the world in, in the sense of to bring all the world's principles in. Now, of course, we love the lost. We want to be a place where those in the world can be drawn out from it. But, you know, as James says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And this is the reason. And so this reality, we're either in Adam or in Christ. And, you know, in the New Testament, we have these lovely pictures which sort of explain to us what it means to be in Christ and united with him. And there are four, really. The first one is the vine and the branches. That's why we read John 15. And the Savior is talking to believers about this union that they have with him. And so this vine and the branches. Now, the vine is a, a form of, of tree, you know, which produces grapes, which can be of tremendous value. It's a tree shrub which bears fruit. And the picture is really obvious. It's really straightforward. The Lord Jesus is saying that he is himself, the main trunk. And all believers are like the branches. They are grafted into him, intimately connected to him. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, he's saying that the spiritual life which Christians have is derived from him. It is all from him. It is so basic. You know, with any kind of tree, the moisture which goes up the trunk, I think it's called the sap, rises and it affects the life of the whole tree. You know, I don't know if you like to watch the changing of the seasons, but we're entering autumn and all the leaves begin to fall. But God willing, after winter comes, then the spring, and those trees which look dormant or even dead, they begin to bud once again. And the time will come when they'll, they'll burst with life and with beauty. And Jesus is describing one aspect of this union that we have with him, and that's that all our spiritual life comes from Christ. It doesn't come from our own efforts. It doesn't come from our own will or our own spiritual journey. It doesn't come from any determination on our part. All our ability to do anything acceptable to God comes from Christ, our blessed Lord and Savior. And he speaks of the fruit which the vine bears. You know, obviously a vine brings grapes, but there'll be no grapes if the branch is not properly knit together into the stem. You know, if there's no connection between the branch and the stem, you know, there's going to be no fruit. And so it is with men and women. If they are not in Christ, there'll be no spiritual life in them. You know, we might be virtuous up to a point. We might be moral. We might be decent, as the, the world terms decent up to a point. We might even look like good citizens. We may be, you know, effective fathers and mothers in our own way, but we won't be Christians. You know, we won't be godly. We won't bring forth the, the fruit of holiness in our life unless and until we are grafted into Jesus Christ. He alone can supply the quality of life which is what the Bible speaks about as true spirituality. A.W. Pink says this, thousands of Christians are complaining of barrenness, but they fail to trace their barrenness to the right source, which is the meagerness of their communion with the Lord Jesus. And consequently, they're seeking fruitfulness in activities, often right in themselves, but which while he is unrecognized, can never yield any fruit. Leanness can only be remedied by abiding in Christ. 
he in them which fills the soul. Take heed to the fellowship and the fruit will spring forth. And you, you see, that's why, my dear friend, that's why the true believer is so different and distinct from others. You know, they're not trying to be something. You know, they're not putting on an act. We don't come to church on the Lord's day and, and, and try to be a Christian and, and put on some sort of external guise. No, we're different. We're believers because Christ is in us and we are in Christ. And, you know, there is this giving of grace from, from Christ to us, the bearing of fruit in our lives from Christ. It's all his work. You know, why do we want to pray? You know, why, why do we love to seek the Lord with others? Why do we hunger for the word of God? Why do we want to fellowship with brothers and sisters? Why do we want to tell other people about the Lord Jesus? Why is it that Christians are even prepared to, to suffer and in certain cases die for their Savior? Why? Because they love him. They love Christ. He is their life. They're in him. They want to please him. And you know, you can't create that. You can't create it artificially. You know, it'll soon evaporate, you know, if you try and do that. It's not something that you can manufacture. You know, you can get a branch of vine and you can tie it on with string and tape and try and, you know, stick it back on. Now, if you try to do that, a gardener would laugh at you. He'd say it's utterly ridiculous. He'd say there's, there's no way that's going to bring forth anything. It has to be naturally grafted in. And so the sap moves along. And so it is with a man or woman. If we're still in Adam and we're not in Christ, we're not real Christians. You know, we may be able to, to talk a little bit. We may know a little bit. We may be able to sort of mix in and around. But the vital part of the matter isn't there. There's no life. There's no reality. And so let me ask you directly this morning, are you in Christ? Do you know what it means to have this this fellowship with him, this union and communion with him. You know, that's the secret of the Christian. They've been brought to know the Lord. They're in him. You say, well, how does God do this? Well, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9, God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in this work of what we call effectual calling that God unites sinners to his son, God is faithful by whom you are called. Now, by the way, the overwhelming majority of times that the word call is used in the New Testament refers to that work of God in which he brings the sinner out of their state of ruin and into a state of grace. And so what happens? Well, with this effectual calling, this calling of God, the gospel of grace is heard. And it's heard by the sinner. We've said it many times before. They, they hear it with the outer ear. But the proclamation of the divine gospel, the, the message of God, of sin, of Christ, repentance of faith, the preaching of the truth comes with pleading and appeal and entreaty. And as that message is preached, there are some who hear it, not just with the outer ear, as it were, but the proclamation is heard by the inner ear. And all of a sudden, this gospel, it grips them. It makes sense like it's never made sense before. They begin to see the Lord Jesus. It captures their hearts, and, and he captures their hearts. And he woos them, and, and they find themselves compelled to run to him and to believe in him and trust him. 
And what has happened? God has intervened. A gracious, merciful God has called them out of darkness into light, called them into fellowship with his Son. The Holy Spirit has worked upon that word to make it alive and real and to apply it savingly. And as that miracle of grace occurs, their first awareness of that divine work is that they see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They see him like never before. And they embrace him as Lord and Savior, as declared in the gospel. They're grafted in. They're in Christ. You see, that's the first picture of what it means to be united, to be in him. But then there's another picture in the New Testament, and uh, I won't go through all the references, but to give you an overview. And it speaks of union with Christ like a building and its foundation. You can read about that, Matthew 6, 1 Peter 2, and Ephesians 2. Now, in what sense is the believer said to be like a building on its foundation? Well, the answer here and the emphasis in this aspect of union with Christ is stability. Stability and security. You know, every building, if it's going to last for very long, has got to have a good foundation. You know, you don't need to be a master builder to know that if you, you build a building on sand or whatever else, you know, it's not going to do very well. You know, it might look good for the first six months, but if it's on a terrible foundation, eventually cracks will appear, you know, the roof will begin to fall and so on, especially when there are strong winds and pressures and movements of the earth. There's got to be a foundation. And the foundation of a Christian's life is Jesus Christ. There's no other foundation. And on the other hand, those who are not Christians, the foundation of their life is like sand. It's what we sung together. You know, that's what they're building on. They're building on sand. And their lives are, are insecure in so many, many ways. And so when the storms of life blow upon them, as we say, they've got nothing to, to hold on to, nothing to stabilize them. The Christian isn't like that. You know, the Christian is grounded and established and rooted and built upon the great foundation of the Lord Jesus. And that's why believers can face life's problems. You know, we might struggle at times and we might stumble at times, but underneath are the everlasting arms. We've got that solid foundation. You know, one of the sad facts today is that people can't face their problems. They run away from them. You know, you, you look at society around us. Now, I've seen it even in this past week. You know, they, they run to drink. They run to drugs. You know, or, or they just try to pretend that their problems aren't there. They keep pushing them away. And so many people are doing that, and you feel for them because they're trying to escape from themselves and from their problems. And they're overwhelmed with all the troubles in their lives. And they've got no foundation. They've got no security. And so their life begins to crack as the pressure comes upon it. You know, do you know how they test steel? I don't know if you know this. They test the quality of steel by subjecting it to pressure. And if it's the real thing, it won't crack. But if it's not the real thing, the cracks soon appear. It's no good. And so it is in our lives, my beloved friends, how we, you know, how can we face up to the pressures of life unless we have this steel put into us by God? You know, he does that whenever we come to Christ and have fellowship with Christ. 
You know, sometimes in our experiences as believers, we wonder how we're going to get through another day. You know, we, we just don't know all these problems, all these difficulties. How are we going to get through? And sometimes it's our own problems. Oftentimes it's the troubles of others and it comes and it overwhelms us. And in our lives as believers, we face that conflict in our own hearts. And, you know, we have been saved, but we have remaining sin in our lives. And because of life in this fallen world, we, we face this battle day by day. How are we going to get through? The Christian is upheld because they are grounded upon the rock. And Christ is their strength. Christ himself puts his strength in us. We can't do it. We can't get through the days. But he sustains us. And his spirit can give us new energy and new life and new vitality. And we, we look to our Savior, Christ in us, the hope of glory, the hope of heaven, and his grace is sufficient, even in the very worst of times. The security, the stability, the certainty of believer. He knows that he is safe, ultimately. He knows that he is saved. He knows that he is on his way to heaven. He knows that he doesn't need to worry about death or eternity. He knows all will be well because he is on a sure foundation. He is united to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful picture. And then the third picture is this, the body and the head. You know, you can see that again throughout many of Paul's letters and think of Ephesians, etc. And concerning this, this believer's union with Christ, the body and the head, Christ is said to be the head, his people are said to be the body. Now, in a, in a measure, we understand that in terms of the church and all those things, but also this, the brain governs all the functions of the body. The brain controls the way that we grow and the way we develop and move. All our eating, all our drinking, everything to do with our life in this world controlled by the brain. The brain is the mastermind, as it were. God has made us that way. And that's the way we're to look at our relationship with Christ. Christ is the brain in that regard, and we are to be in obedience and subjection to him. That means to say that the Christian's life is a life which is controlled and directed by the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so Christ guides his people, guides his church, and he does that through his word, the Bible. That's why the Christian's life is so very different, because his standards are the standards of heaven. You know, Jesus Christ is by the Spirit and through the word, teaching them continually how to live life. You know, we sometimes call this sanctification. It's that growth in holiness in the life of the believer. You know, it's not something that, you know, we do ourselves. It is communicated to us because of our union with the great head who is Christ himself. And he pours light and knowledge and understanding upon our minds and upon our souls and directs us. Again, John 15 verses 4 and 7. Abide in me and I in you. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you. In other words, it's that real fellowship with Christ as he comes to us in his word. And that's why when we come to our devotions, not just in our times together, but also in our individual devotions with the Lord, 
you know, it, it is easy to get drawn into this idea of a sort of a legalistic duty to tick the box. You know, we've, we've done our devotions today. And the danger is we can fall into Phariseeism like that. No, when we come to the Word in our devotions, we're coming to meet Him. We're coming to spend time with Him. And He comes to us in His Word. He abides in us by His Word. And we abide in Him by, by loving worship and obedience. We, we abide in Christ as we obey His Word. And Christ abides in us as the, the Spirit of God takes the Word and applies it to us and brings Christ to us by faith as we commune with him and feed on him and know life in him. Do you know, when we start to realize that, you know, those times are so precious when we come aside to be with him and to speak with him and to delight in him. You know, the believer hears the shepherd's voice. Think of Isaiah 30, verse 21. This is the way Walk ye in it. You know, if he goes to the right hand or to the left and leaves the path, Christ is correcting his life. You know, and as all this takes place, we are being changed to be more and more like the Savior, growing in our likeness to the Lord Jesus. We're not left to our own devices, but we have a faithful friend, a counselor, a guide, a defender. That's the third picture. And then the last picture as we come to a close on this whole matter of union. And the picture is the marriage of Christ and his church. You know, like the union that exists between a husband and wife, that pictures the union of Christ and his church. And all Christians bear this relationship to Christ. He is the husband and his people are, you know, his wife. Christ and his people are bound together in that type of union. And he is obliged to his people in that regard. You know, it's not a, a really a matter of option on his part, although it's all a matter of grace, but he has pledged himself to his people. I wonder if you've understood that this morning. Christ has pledged himself to you, believer. He loves you. He is the husband of his people every day, all the days of their life. He has pledged to you, promised, sworn, a vow that he will look after you every moment of every day. He won't leave you. He won't forsake you. He will love you and loves you everlastingly. And he will show his love for you in your heart, in your life, in your experience. Some of them are sad, but they are sweetened by his presence and sweetened by his love. It says that he's able to put a cup of comfort to our lips in times of evil. He can give us joy unspeakable and full of glory. When all seems bleak and black and dark and terrible, Christ is able to lift us, to embrace us, to lift us up on eagle's wings so that we run and are not weary, so that we walk and do not faint. And all of that because he is unspeakable in his love and his grace and his kindness. You know, there is nothing that compares to being united with him. And all these pictures show us these lovely things about the fact that all our life comes to us, all our spiritual life comes to us through him. The fact that we have this wonderful foundation and stability in him, and stability in him. The fact that he is with us to guide and to bless and to lead. And the fact that he loves us and will keep us. 
there's no one like him. No one to compare with him. And the believer has Christ. The believer is in Christ. And he is in them. They are in this blessed relationship with the Lord Jesus that he is the better Adam to us. He is the last Adam. He is the Savior. And there is only one way that we can be united to Christ, and that is by faith, which is the gift of God. And so I ask you this morning, are we those who, who fall at the feet of him, who has made this transformation a reality and brought all of that saving power into our lives by virtue of uniting us to his Son? Are we those who worship him, who love him and adore him, that's the essence of true salvation, union with Christ. It's not simply salvation we need. It's him. It's the Savior. It's the Lord Jesus. And you know, if you do have that relationship with him this morning, then for us, all things are working together for good. When we die, we won't wholly die. Our souls will go to glory. Our eyes will behold the Lord Jesus Christ himself and we shall be with him, and we shall worship him and, and kiss his feet and adore his blessed name. We'll cast our crowns before him and we'll say, worthy is the Lamb. And this is the hope and the life and the glory and the destiny of every true Christian. He will lead us to be with him. He will bring us through to that state of glory to indeed eventually that new heavens and new earth, that constant fellowship unhindered by sin, it'll be glorious. He loves us. He will keep us. We are his. We are in him this morning, and to be in Christ is to be a real Christian. Are you a real Christian? Do you know the Lord Jesus? Because if you do, you have a wonderful hope, a wonderful reason to rejoice a wonderful reason to be thankful today and all days. Amen.